the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah. I'm Sarah Pine, your host, and today we have Dr. Amanda Ryman on the show. She is the founder of Personal Plants, and she's also the chief knowledge officer at New Frontier Data. I'm really excited to have her here today, and we are going to get down and talk about consumption. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I was really excited to come on today. We've got a lot to talk about, and I've been really looking forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> so before we start, my standard question, what was your first cannabis experience? Well, I would say that I had the first kind of typical teenager cannabis experience in high school, meaning that I was at some party. I was probably a little buzzed from alcohol. Somebody handed me a joint or maybe it was one of those little dugout uh, things that looked like cigarettes that we used to use back in the day. I remember those. Yeah, it was really crappy weed because it was Indiana in the early 90s. Um, And I probably took a few hits and didn't really notice the difference between any kind of buzz from the cannabis and the alcohol that I had already consumed and called it a day. But I would say that my first real cannabis experience came in college when I was at the University of Texas at Austin, which is where I started my college career. And I was in my dorm and I had gotten in a fight with one of my friends, as you know, happens when you're a freshman in college. And so another one of my friends was like, come with me. I'm you're just come with me. And so I went to his dorm room and he loaded up a pipe of cannabis and he passed it to me and I smoked it. And I was like, in the clouds. I mean, what I remember is that a couple other friends came over and they started telling this joke. And it was one of those jokes that lasts like 10 minutes. And like kind of the punchline is that the joke lasts so long. And then there's kind of some stupid punchline at the end. Those are the and kind all- of jokes I tell. <laughs> okay. Well, so you know. Yeah. So all I can remember is sitting there and thinking, I am so glad that this joke is so long because I cannot talk. <laughs> And I cannot move. And so sitting here, being silent and still, it was very appropriate for the situation. But, you know, so that was my very first cannabis experience. But I will say that from the beginning, cannabis and I have just enjoyed a wonderful relationship. I'm not a huge substance user. I'm not a huge drinker. I've dabbled in other things. I occasionally use psychedelics. But there's something was always about cannabis that was just really fit with my system, with how I operated, how I like to feel. So it was pretty much love at first sight. That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) Anytime you tell a long joke like that, people either laugh really hard or they look at you like they want to stab you. Yeah, I think it was mixed. (laughs) I would say it's 50-50. It was some joke about horses. Oh, Lord. Their whole life together. And yeah, it was um, it was a very interesting joke, but perfect joke for a room full of people that were using cannabis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I think it's amazing the first time that we try it, just how well, I I think it just kind of goes back to that, those times in your life where you experience something new, whether it's, you know, cannabis or for me, when I first tried it for the first time, that was around the time when I was starting to explore like different books, like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and like, you know, reading, you know, um, Ram Dass or like, you know, getting into like classic fiction. I mean, I'm like, 
maybe not everybody's that way, but I that was like my nerdy time when it was like the world is new and everything feels new. And that first experience was kind of like, wow, I've never felt this way before. It's like how to compare and contrast it to normal life and part of growing up, although for our listeners, we're not condoning youth access. It's just that it's a fact of life for a lot of us. Absolutely. I mean, you know, to pretend that young people don't have the opportunity to consume cannabis is, you know, pretty naive. Um, You know, young people are offered all kinds of substances before they're old enough to consume them. And so I'm a real big advocate for drug education, for realistic drug education that comes from a harm reduction perspective, because the the worst thing we can do is not arm young people with information that's going to help keep them safe. It's the same way with sex education. It's the same way with drug education. As I mentioned, I grew up in Indiana. I was very, very much a graduate of the D.A.R.E. generation. Oh, yeah. uh, we had a red ribbon club at my high school, which was a group of teenagers who promised at the age of like 16 to never, ever, ever use drugs ever in their entire lives. But yet alcohol was very common at all of our high school parties. So, you know, with legalization and the opportunity that people have when they're 21 to come in and start purchasing cannabis products, I feel like we're still doing a really poor job at educating them about how to make good decisions, both in terms of what products they're choosing, what their consumption patterns look like. And if we don't really pay attention to educating young people with the realities of cannabis consumption, the good and the bad, the benefits and the harms, then we're going to see a lot of folks make choices and have consequences that didn't have to happen. And so I think that's so important. Um, And then something else I'll just mention quickly, not to bring the research in right away, but when you were talking about the first time and, and kind of how that makes you feel, sociologist Howard Becker wrote a very famous book called Becoming a Marijuana User. And he wrote it in like the 1950s, I believe, was the first edition. And you know, when I was growing up, there was kind of this urban legend that you didn't get high the first time you smoked pot. You know, people are like, oh, you don't get high the first time. And what he found in his research was that that was actually true, that cannabis and knowing how to feel high is a social learning process, meaning that it's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, doesn't make a sound. If somebody consumes cannabis, but no one's around to show them what that means, do they feel it? And what he found was that it actually takes a few times because You need to be around other people that are consuming. You need to see how they act. You need to feel their energy change. And that gives you cues about how you should feel. Um, And so all that is to say, if you're a newer consumer, it's a good idea to experience those first few times around experienced consumers who have a good relationship with cannabis, because that's really going to onboard you into consumption in a way that shows you kind of a balanced approach versus folks that are just getting way too intoxicated or having adverse reactions, because that really can impact your own journey into becoming a consumer. That's fascinating and also a really, really good point. I'd add to that that teaching kids the facts about drugs also demystifies it, because there's nothing that I loved more as a precocious teenager than trying something I wasn't supposed to and that I didn't, you know... That I knew something about because I never went into anything blindly, but there was some sort of taboo. And as we're getting into this realm of normalization, and I, there's been much more research showing that it's less appealing to youth and youth access, which is, I oh, think, absolutely. fascinating. 
Yeah. Well, it's the for- forbidden fruit effect, yeah. right? So you tell a kid, you know, you sit them in a room with a red button. You tell them you can do whatever you want. Just don't touch this button. And then you leave the room. And that's immediately all they want to do is yeah. touch the button. And so there's definitely that psychological effect. There's also the interesting effect of not wanting to do what your parents do. So as more young people see their parents engaging in cannabis use, their way of rebelling is to not use cannabis. And so we will definitely see, I think, a generation of young people after, you know, my generation is Gen X and then the next one is millennials, as we're all super into the cannabis because we grew up during prohibition and it's so exciting for us to have access that our kids are going to be like, eh, that's something my parents do. I'm going to do some other weird, dangerous thing that is new that they don't do, like some TikTok challenge. Um, where <laughs> you know, far more dangerous. Far more dangerous. Don't eat Tide Pods, kids. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, that's just normal, right? It's normal for young people to see what their parents are doing and then choose to do the opposite as their form of rebellion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, had, I had David Crosby on the podcast um, we spoke this past fall and I had some listeners send in questions and one of them was, what would you say about, you know, what are your views on kids and cannabis? And he he pretty much said the same thing. He was like, tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. And that's how you keep people safe. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, there's a lot of harm reduction techniques that consumers, whether they're teens or adults, can engage in to reduce the harms associated with potentially using cannabis. And they're not like these crazy ideas. I mean, they're very practical pieces of knowledge. But if our only message is don't do it, we never have the chance to give them the information that may keep them safer, like the differences in different methods of con- of uh, consumption. Um, you know, the the impact of, of THC versus CBD. Um, you know, there's so much about using cannabis and learning to use cannabis that we take in as a way to keep ourselves safe and balanced. So why shouldn't we impart those same messages to people that are future consumers? Exactly. And I'd, I'd rather... I'd rather see experimentation with that, quite honestly, than somebody saying, oh, this synthesized cannabinoid that I can get at this truck stop, since it's over the counter, I'm going to try that because that's probably okay since it's for sale in a store. Because we, as we well know, nothing could be further from the truth. Well, I think you're speaking to one of the great myths of drug education, which is that legal substances are safer than illegal ones. Right. Right. We could go into a whole <laughs> conversation about what's legal. Is it necessarily right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it has a lot to do with who was pushing for legality and what was going on in the social sphere at that time versus what are the actual public health risks and benefits. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's a, a myth that we really have to squash for young people, because as you said, you know, they are faced with using a, a substance that's legal or available, uh, and they view that as being safer than one that is illegal or not available, which is not necessarily true. And, you know, we do know that cannabis does have its risks. Fatal overdose is not one of them. Um, this is not true with alcohol. Right. So, you know, even educating young people about that, I think, is is really crucial. It is. It is. Because, you know, it's we we used to talk about before you have, you know, too much cannabis. The only thing at risk is probably a very large box of cookies. 
we've all had or anxiety or anxiety. Yeah. So, you know, I, I will say that I hear a lot, you know, well, cannabis, there's no overdose. Um, there's no negative risks with consuming too much, but the reality is there are, and people who consume too much THC may have adverse reactions like anxiety. Um, you know, they may have racing heart rate. Uh, they may have increased respiration. Um, they may have a feeling of disassociation. And while not fatal and really not harmful, it can be extremely uncomfortable. And, you know, I'll also say that it can impact your ability to enjoy cannabis in the future. Um, I used to teach at Berkeley. I would regularly give lectures to hundreds of students talking about educating young people about cannabis. And inevitably, at least one or two would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, two years ago, I ate this edible. And it really just sent me into a bad place and had an anxiety attack. And now even if I take the smallest hit of cannabis, that anxiety feeling comes right back. And so I think that, you know, you have to be really careful, because if you do have an adverse reaction or an overdose, it can impact your consumption in the future. And I would tell them, you know, cannabis consumption, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And the reality is, when we think about us as aging individuals, uh, cannabis is going to be most useful to us when we're old, um, because that's when we have the aches and pains and the trouble sleeping and the menopause and all the wonderful things that come with aging. And if you've spent your youth using so much cannabis that either your tolerance has become so high or you've had anxiety reactions to it, it really may impede your ability to supplement your endocannabinoid system at a time when your body really needs it. Truth. Truth. Yeah, I, th I think having real conversations about well, what we've talked about in the past, what we're going to talk about today, conscious consumption, really being aware of what your dosage is. And if you're not familiar with either a mode of use or cannabis in general, starting very low and figuring out where that spot is where you feel your comfort or you're getting what it is that you wanted to get out of it is, is crucial. And I think to make sure that we don't set people up for being frustrated more than anything, or like you were mentioning, having a bad experience, though not fatal, can be really unpleasant, is is really setting up those expectations so that people can be patient with their journey. And I wanted to, because you did mention your work at Berkeley, I think I know people will be really curious to see how this PhD got into cannabis and what what got you into working with it? How did you feel that it's important as a scholar, like the impact that it made on the people that you worked with in your career? Let's, let's talk about all that before we nerd out on the consumption part, although I, I can't wait to get to that too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in the Midwest uh, during very heavy prohibition times. Um, like I said, it was Indiana and, and Chicago in the early and mid 90s. Uh, but I always enjoyed cannabis. I had to go through the channels to buy it on the illicit market. And I'm going to sound like the old fuddy-duddy saying I used to walk up hill to school both ways in a <laughs> snowstorm. But, you know, back in those days, we didn't have cell phones. Uh, we had pagers, which meant that you had to page your guy. And then you had to stay home and wait by an actual phone at your house for him to call you, maybe. And then you had to go meet him somewhere and you had to exchange and whatever you got, you got. There was no edibles. There was no, oh, I prefer a limonene Ford vape pen. Like, no, there was none of that. There was a bag of weed and it cost like $25 a quarter. And it was usually pretty crappy. 
So in 2002, I moved to the Bay Area because I was starting the PhD program in social welfare at Berkeley. And what really drew me to that, honestly, was the social justice relationship with the drug war. So I was a member of Students for Sensible Drug Policy when they were first founded in the late 90s. I went to their very first national conference in D.C., and that just blew my mind. I mean, I learned all about the crack cocaine sentencing disparity laws. I learned about mandatory minimums. I learned about folks not being able to get college funding if they had drug charges on their record. And all of this was just extremely disturbing to me. I had some very good friends in Austin who had very severe issues with substance use. And I saw many of them go through a revolving door from prison to out to prison to out until they eventually died. And so I really wanted to change the laws. I mean, that that's what I was about. And being a woman, I felt that if I was really going to change the laws, I had to become a doctor because otherwise I just didn't see anyone giving me the time of day as this kind of like bleeding heart social worker who wanted to change drug laws. I figured in order to be in the room where these decisions were being made, I had to kind of go all the way. So there was an amazing scholar at Berkeley named Lorraine Medanik who was in the School of Social Welfare, and she studied substance use. So I went to Berkeley to study with her. And I was really still bent on studying drug policy and looking at the social justice. And then when I got to Berkeley, this was in 2002, I mean, the medical cannabis just shocked the shit out of me. I mean, I was from Chicago. This is kind of pre-mass media, social media, internet so even though we knew that there was medical cannabis in California, we really didn't know what that looked like or what that meant. Um, I was personally diagnosed with arthritis in my early 20s, and it was very painful. It's in my feet. And my doctor was like, well, we can start cortisone shots. Like We can try some different things to help you with the pain. We can give you pain medication. And I really didn't want any of that. I was concerned about what I would be like in my 40s if I was taking pain medication regularly since my 20s. So I joined the Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter at Berkeley, and they were like, you should become a medical cannabis patient. And I was like, you can do that? And they're like, yeah, just go see Dr. Frank Lacido in Berkeley, and, and he'll write you a recommendation. So I did, and he's amazing. He's Love still my Frank. doctor all of these years later. <laughs> and um, so I went to see him, and I got a recommendation, and I went to my very first dispensary which was called CARE. It was on the corner of 19th and Telegraph in Oakland. It was right down the street from the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Club where you went to actually get your card. And, you know, you asked me about the first time I smoked cannabis. I remember even more vividly the first time I went to a dispensary. And it could be because I was from this illicit market where, you know, everything was just so chaotic and unreliable. And here I was in this room with this beautiful mural on the wall, standing in front of a glass case with all of these different strains of cannabis, plus all of Mickey Martin's tainted edibles, Reefer's peanut butter cups and stoners instead of Snickers. And I was rendered speechless. Like I, I didn't even know what to say. And so I bought cannabis that day. And then I went to Berkeley Patients Group um, and visited there. And that's when I was really taken aback by how this dispensary was operating as a social service provider. And that's what got me interested in studying this. Because as a social worker, as somebody who comes from a social service background, you know, it's very rare to be able to get people who don't have insurance any kind of social services. And if you can, a lot of times they're pretty crappy or they're very expensive. And here was Berkeley Patients Group providing free acupuncture, 
free massage therapy, open mic night, free food, free internet access, bingo, a consumption lounge, and everything was free. And so I was like, this is amazing. I also knew that as legalization marched forward and capitalism reared its ugly head, this was a fleeting model that we would not see forever. And so I felt like I had to capture it. I felt like we needed evidence that there was a time when cannabis was about healthcare and not about making money. So I decided to use my doctoral dissertation because I mean, you know, who else doesn't want to sit in dispensaries and do surveys for six weeks or, you know, the whole summer. So I selected a sample of dispensaries in Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco. And I spent a whole summer in there administering surveys to patients. And some of them couldn't see or couldn't read. And I would give the, read the survey out loud to them. Um, I would capture what services the dispensaries were offering. So uh, there was a dispensary at 14th and uh, Market in San Francisco that offered doggy daycare. They had a lot of patients who had doctor's appointments during the day and couldn't take their dogs with them. So they had doggy daycare on site. Um, I studied like the original vapor room uh, that used to be over on Haight Street before they moved. That was my um, first. Yeah, that was your first. Yeah. I, I, that base, that consumption area to me felt like I was in somebody's living room. Like I felt like it was like my friend's parents' house and like we were hanging out smoking pot. I love that. Place. They had board games. Yeah. And they had like a fish tank and, you know, just all the couches. So I collected data on 130 patients. And just to give you a sense of how little we knew back then, this was in 2006. That at the time was the largest sample of medical cannabis patients in existence. No one had ever collected data on more than 130 medical cannabis patients. And it was the very first study to actually ask patients questions in the dispensary about how they were using dispensaries and what their health was like. And that's really what got me into this. And, you know, at the time, nobody was doing it. So I, you know, had an opportunity to really present this research everywhere. And that's where I decided that we needed to shine a light on the reality of what was happening. If not to inform policy, then also to capture all of the good that came from those early dispensaries and the focus on patient health, because I don't see that as much anymore. No, it's uh, it's sad that it's gone away. I remember, um, I remember talking to Michael Aldridge about nine eleven and how he got a call that morning because they were the dispensary champs. Mm -hmm. It was they got a call in the morning saying everybody's really upset. There's a line of community members going down the block. I think we should open and get some pizzas so that everybody can spend time together. And I think that's one of the things that I really miss about the 215 days versus what we're seeing now where we're looking at formula retail, you know, people arguing as to whether or not people behind the bar should even have access to education and not allowing dispensaries to offer services to support their community because we have a lot of community members that are low income, that are unhoused, that really see us as a, a, a prime spoke in their community and their support system. And it's just not what it used to be, which really is it's disheartening. And I think that we need to do something to be able to give people the option to support that kind of structure. 
Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. And, you know, when like 280E, when that really started to become implemented, you know, that was a huge shift because a lot of the services that people were offering, they couldn't deduct, right? They couldn't right. look at this as like, well, I'm paying this massage therapist or I have a massage room. Um, and it really became untenable in a lot of ways. And then you saw places really clamping down on on-site consumption, um, you know, you saw the, the the cost of renting a space skyrocket, so people couldn't afford, especially in the Bay Area, to have these very large spaces. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of that pushed people into this more like quick service model. Um, but I will say there are definitely dispensaries that still embrace kind of the education community forward approach. Um, you know, I'll give a shout out to Plant Shop here in Ukiah, which is one of my favorites. And they have a beautiful outdoor lounge. Um, I've been there giving talks on conscious consumption. They have yoga, they have music, they have places for people to hang out and relax. And when I go there, I tell them like, this is what I imagined legalization would be like. Yeah. You know, they have a lot of local product in their store. They have a beautiful place to hang out. And so it really is like a community piece rather than it just being another store. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. I think that's that's, a, that's what it should be like. In in the early days when I was at Apothecarium, we didn't have the space in our little tiny store because we had that little storefront at Church and Market. But we had great relationships with the LBGTQ Center and also this little Lutheran church that was right across from the Safeway. And that's where we had a therapist that would have different group sessions for, they had, there was a yoga class for women, there was an anxiety group, there was a veterans group. We had all these different support groups that were able to, you know, look at it from a, a more well-rounded view. It's like, we're not just sending you your, your weed and sending you home, we're giving you tools because it takes, cannabis is great, but it's not a panacea. It takes other things to help you know, us, we have to look at it from like a more holistic perspective, perhaps. Um, I, I just, I really, I, I love everything that you've done. And just the fact that, I, I, thank you for getting your PhD, because it's <laughs> really like, <laughs> it really landed a lot of credibility to the rest of us too, with all of the things that you were talking about, because people don't take you seriously when you come from cannabis, even people who are like in the sea level in cannabis now, they came from somewhere else. And the people who have been here, they're kind of like, whatever, which is why when I go into meetings, although, you know, he's a lot of it's from home these days, it's like people are like, you're all suited up and you're in heels. I'm like, yes, I am. Because I have something <laughs> to say. <laughs> and, and though my my very intelligent colleague next to me who's much more casual than I am probably has even more to say than I do. I understand that you're going to focus on me, which is sad, but a fact. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that you kind of, I kind of felt like being a woman in cannabis, you a little bit have this double whammy against you, yeah. right? Because not only do you have kind of the female thing, which they immediately are like, oh, aren't you cute? And, you know, not really listening to what you have to say. But then when you come from cannabis, there's automatically this assumption that you're a stoner. Yes. And, you know, there that isn't as much anymore now that, as you mentioned, a lot of folks are coming into cannabis from outside of the cannabis space. But especially back in the early days, you know, going to city council meetings or meeting with representatives in Sacramento, you know, there was always this kind of joke around, oh, here come the cannabis people. I mean, if I could tell you the number of times in faculty meetings at Berkeley that someone would be like, oh, did Amanda bring any brownies? Like every time, every time. And 
You know, I think it's mostly because people are a little uncomfortable because as we mentioned, we do not do a good job of educating people about cannabis. Right. Talking about cannabis outside of it being this like vice. So I think there is some discomfort there. But I also think it was kind of this way to show, you know, we still do not think that you are at the same level we are because you study something that's for fun. Yeah, I I think that cannabis in general is a great, a great example of just how judgy people are around where you come from or your institutionalization or the lens through which you see the world. I'm going to. I, I want to get your opinion on this. Okay. So I was just in a subcommittee meeting yesterday. And for those of you listening, this was actually a couple of months ago because we're recording ahead of time. <laughs> but we were we were having this conversation and you know how I am. I'm really big on professional development and education. And though people behind the bar are not healthcare professionals, they do need to have a certain amount of knowledge to help people who are new to cannabis navigate the menus so that they can have more successful outcomes and create a safe container for experimentation. On top of that, I think it's very important to engage professionals in the field with professional development because as we've seen, retention levels can be really whacked out people cycle out of jobs especially in the dispensaries and part of that is because they're not getting challenged they're not having this career growth people who are just behind a bar selling something tend to get bored and move on and there was i i was bringing this up that we need to have more trainings and educations accessible for these professionals because as we're going into formula retail environments a lot of that is going away from the stores themselves And I had a physician come on commenting, no, we don't want them practicing medicine and we don't want to waste money on them because the turnover is high and this and that. And the elitism of that drives me insane because I came from a good paying middle management job to go behind that bar and I couldn't believe how people made judgments about me as a woman as a woman of color and me as a person in a retail position that I must not have a damn thought in my head. And of course, and I'd be like, go ahead, underestimate me. That'll be fun. (laughs) But (laughs) I see this perpetuating through the industry and I don't think it's healthy. I'm not saying that, you know, your bud tender should be giving you advice on, you know, what certain things to take for certain medical conditions. But I do think that they should have enough education to set the stage for somebody to go on their experimentation with a foundation to start out with and also to create greater engagement in our industry so that we're cultivating these people, these professionals that will go on to do other things in the industry. Nobody stays behind the bar forever, but it's a great place to start to get an idea of products, learning more about cannabis, learning more about people and demographics, and even the policy side of it. There's so much that can be seen from that retail experience. And so it just, I know I'm going on a little tangent, Amanda, but it just pisses me off when I feel like there's gatekeeping, especially when it's coming from professionals that wouldn't have even met me for a meeting six years ago to talk about cannabis and medicine. 
Oh, no, I completely agree with you. And I think it was in 2003, I developed a bud tender training for Americans for Safe Access. And I based it off of how we train social workers to interact with clients, which is that you're meeting the person where they're at, there's no judgment, and you're very client-centered through the entire interaction. It's not about you. It's about finding out about them. Right. And then a few years ago, I had the opportunity, along with Aaron Varney, who's up in Washington, and Omar Figueroa, who's here in the Bay Area, Love to Omar. develop the, consu- yeah, the consumer interaction protocol for the Ganjier program. And again, we brought back that same context, active listening, meeting the person where they're at. Mm -hmm. And when I conduct the exams for Gangier, myself and Wendy Kornberg, she's way better at being the different characters than I am. She like goes all out. But we basically played these different characters and it's up to the, the person being tested to listen to us, to hear what we're telling them. And then to react accordingly. And we're very clear about not giving medical advice. And we're very clear that, you know, you can say this may help with pain. You cannot say this is for epilepsy. And so, you know, if somebody comes in and they're telling you that they're a mom and they're really worried that someone's going to know they're using cannabis and they have a sore knee, you're not going to recommend a dab, right? You're going to listen to them and hear this person is really nervous They do not want people around them to know they're consuming cannabis. So even if I think it's okay, they obviously don't. I'm not going to judge them for that. I'm going to recommend a product where they're going to be able to do it without people finding out. Yeah. And so like having that type of education, that isn't about being a doctor. It's about being a good listener and understanding that people are coming to you more times than not in the context of wanting to improve their health. Right. It's all about relationship building and being able to be a source for the beginning of the conversation. If somebody feels comfortable talking to a physician, and and for those of you out there who are using cannabis and you do have access to a doctor, I do suggest it. You should always let your doctor know what you're using if you feel comfortable having that conversation. But we're also looking at, you know, low-income folks that may not have access to that kind of medical support. So they may not be they may not be able to wait and they can't take a gamble on something that may or may not work because cannabis is expensive. Yes. You know, and we yes. also have a lot of people that aren't necessarily considering themselves medical users. Right. Right. So, you know, New Frontier, we do our consumer survey every year. And, you know, we ask people, are you completely medical? Are you mostly medical, a little recreational, mostly rec, a little med or purely recreational? And probably no surprise to you, over half of the folks say that I'm both. Sometimes I'm using because I can't sleep and I consider that medical. And sometimes I'm using because I'm about to go on a hike and I consider that recreational. So when people are coming to a dispensary, they have varying motivations, uh, varying environments in which they're choosing to consume. And if they're not an actual medical patient, then they may not be talking to their doctor about this. And so it isn't necessarily even a matter of helping someone treat a specific condition as it is to match them with the right method of consumption, the right level of potency for the experience that they're seeking based on who they are as a consumer. And let me tell you, you have no idea about any of that unless you're really good at listening. Right. That's key. It's huge. I I've a lot of times I found that Pete there there are I found there are there are lots of different variations on this, but the two main variations I've seen 
are people who use it recreationally, that something comes up in their life and they decide to experiment with using it to create relief for something or other that happens in their lives. Or people who have been very against it, the stigma has been very strong, but then they have an emer emergency in their lives, a medical emergency, and somebody they love suggests that they should try it. And those are the two things that I find with like the breakthroughs around medical use. But by and large, people like to use it to kick back. Relaxation is the number one reason. Yeah. And we ask consumers, what, what's the primary goal of your consumption? It's relaxation, stress relief, anxiety relief, sleep. Well, I, talking about that, because a, a few months ago, we were talking about the latest report that New Frontier had come out with consumption, but you have a new one that's coming that's come out this April. Can we talk about that a little bit? Right. Well, the one that's coming out this April is on the market. So um, every year we do market projection updates. We have an amazing uh, senior analyst, uh, Casey, who goes in and, and revises her models based on what we've seen in the past year. And it's really a way to look at with new markets coming online, you know, what that's going to do. Because as you can imagine, when a new state opens up, it not only affects that state, it affects the states around it. If you look at Illinois, for example, they have a lot of dispensaries on the border with Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Missouri is now wreck. So what's going to happen to those dispensaries in Illinois now that folks don't have to drive across the border in order to access their product? Um, when a state moves from medical to adult use, like Florida is looking to do, you know, what happens to the medical market? You know, so far in every state that's gone from medical to adult use, we see a decline in the medical market. Um, you know, there's folks that choose to not renew their recommendations. They want to just go into the adult use market. But what we see even more is that when a state goes adult use, that growth in the adult use market is pulling from the illicit market. And so medical patients are very stable consumers. I actually just did an analysis of this yesterday. They are more, so those who have a medical card versus those that don't, those who have a medical card are way more likely to say, I go to the same dispensary all the time. Mm -hmm. I do not switch it up. Um, they're more likely to say that I'm very affected by price, that loyalty programs are very important to me because they're spending more. Right. Um, you know, they end up when we have a recession or we have inflation or we have some of these economic constraints, there are some folks that will reduce their use. There are other folks that will move to the illicit market because it's cheaper. There are some folks that will just choose bulk, cheaper products, right? So instead of buying like the high end eighth, they're going to buy like the cheaper half ounce that's available. But medical patients don't always have that option. You know, once they find something that's working for them, um, they're really going to want to continue with that product. So I think that we really have to pay attention to the needs of medical patients because they are not like the typical consumer. They, they have needs that the typical consumer does not. Um, and so, you know, looking at opportunities to make sure that they have the medicine that they need, that there are dispensaries that cater to people with medical needs is something that we have to continue. Um, and I know Americans for Safe Access recently put out their state of the states report where they grade each state based on access and taxes. And let me tell you, there isn't a state that's doing too great. Yeah. I think California got a C or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's an issue as we were talking about that in subcommittee, how to be able to better serve medical patients, because as we saw, it, well, 
when I was one of the co-chairs of the legalization task force for San Francisco, we wanted to make it where every dispensary had to keep their medical licensing for at least two years that they they couldn't just go to adult use because we wanted to protect the patients and protect the products. A lot of products that medical patients depended on did disappear through legalization. We lost a lot of great brands. But then there's also the issue around and I think this is something that, you know, patients don't care about because they know what they need. Other people may not understand it as well. I know that you you'll get it because you've been in all the areas you've you know. But it's when we look at like inventory in a dispensary, and especially when we're in California, where real estate is so high, so the space is so precious. Having two sets of inventory, adult use products and medical use products, is it's just a really hard thing for them to do. So more often than not they will just go with all adult use products and tell the patients figure it out. Well, and then part of that also is the type of products yeah. that patients are using. So a new frontier, one of the things we do with our consumer survey is we use cluster analysis to develop these archetypes, these different consumer archetypes. And when you look at folks that are using for purely medical purposes, you know, they're the ones using the tinctures and the sobs and the suppositories and, you know, the things, the transdermal patches, um, you know, the, the non-medical consumer wants the flour and the vape pens and the concentrate traits. And so as a dispensary, you know, you mentioned like the space is limited in inventory. Um, people are looking to stock the shelves with the things that the most consumers are going to buy, uh, which of course is flour. 80% of consumers use flour, regardless of their medical or not. But some of these more specialty products, especially the non-intoxicating products, the, C the THCA, the CBD products, um, the topicals, you start, I've really noticed those disappearing from the shelves. And it's because when you're a dispensary and you're a buyer and you're like, well, what am I going to use my precious space for? It's going to be the thing that you think is going to appeal to the most consumers. And because we don't have these dedicated medical markets, a lot of the products that appeal most to medical consumers are, are really starting to vanish. Yeah, they are. I also think that as we're looking at the consumer bases, and especially when we're looking at like some of the larger cannabis companies in particular, some of the MSOs, I feel like <laughs> they're they're missing a big point when we're looking at the sustainability of the cannabis industry. They preach to the converted. You know, it's it's great that like you want to capture that group, but it's limited. The cannabis culture, the people who are true aficionados, it's not a large group of us. It really isn't. And what we need to be doing is looking at your everyday person who might be curious about it, that may want to just use it, like we were saying before, for the biggest reason that most people do, for relaxing. But there's also some of these emerging cannabinoids that could be really helpful for them. Like, I love CBG when I get so busy that my mind starts to race and I'm like a deer caught in the headlights. CBG for me calms me down without giving me the spaciness that CBD does. And that's just how it works for my body. 
But to be able to have these conversations about different tools, not necessarily calling it like medicinal use, but being able to use it as a part of a lifestyle for people who don't subscribe to heady culture, never have, never will. They just don't identify as that. And I feel like we're really missing that. And that's so when we're cutting out things like educational programs for the public in dispensaries or just educating staff so that they're empowered to help people get curious about it so that they learn more even on their own. They're missing a huge component of what could create sustainability in sales. And, you know, I, I hate to look at it this way because it always feels cheesy for me because I come from through it to education from a very I, pure and nerdy <laughs> you know but it is like when you look at a sales and marketing perspective it only strengthens it as well because it's part of that relationship building and if we could get into the one thing I would love to see coming back and I think it would make a huge difference for a lot of the products that we're talking about that are disappearing is if we could allow sampling in the stores again too because no one wants to take it I just want to smell it yeah so when I was doing my my dissertation research, um, that dispensary in San Francisco that had the doggy daycare, they had a sign on the case that said, please do not put the cannabis up your nose. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? Like, yeah. like, are people snorting weed in California? Like, what is going on? And then I observed people and every single person smelled the product before they bought it. Right. This was before we had THC testing. This is definitely before we had any kind of terpene testing. And, you know, olfactory sense, the sense of smell is one of the strongest senses when it comes to bringing up memory. And so, you know, I think that people are smelling the product because they're looking for their brains to say, oh, that's it. Like, that's the product we were using when we had that really good time. And, you know, whether that's limonene or pinene or osamine, which tends to be my favorite, um, if there's something that's hitting for them when they smell it and taking away our ability to smell the product, I feel really does a disservice to people because now really the only thing they have to make decisions on is THC percentage and maybe terpenes if it happens to be on there. Um, and that's really doing a disservice to people that are trying to find the right product for them. You know, it's a, it's really a sensory experience. It and is. so the ability to smell the product, I think, would go a long way to people being able to make good decisions about conscious. It's part of conscious consumption, right? Using all of your senses and really thinking about your intention in consuming that product. Part of it is really being able to experience that. I cannot wait to smell my pink boost goddess this afternoon. It has amazing terpene profile. Profile, and I know it's just going to light me up as right. getting excited about what's going to happen. That's it. I, I, when I look at some of those poor, sad smell jars and dispensers where people have sh- been shaking them so you can see like all the trichome dust on the bottom, they like, just look sad, sad, sad and beaten. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. We have to bring back the ability to open the jar and, and smell it in a real way. I, I miss that. I miss... um. You know, I'm no longer in a dispensary, but back in the early days when I was behind the bar, being able to actually measure out and was for part of the educational experience, getting more like the people that I work with behind the bar have an education that other cannabis consultants don't, where they're like new bud structure, 
the subtleties of the aroma, like so many different things that when it's packaged, you don't get to access unless you're filling the smell jar, you take something home. But when you were saying that to not stick the cannabis up your nose, we used to deal with that. Every so often, somebody would reach in that jar and grab a bud and be like, and like putting it up to their face. And I'd be like, hey, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> and then they'd look at me and I'd be like, would you want to take home a bud that everyone in San Francisco has touched and you've got lots of things on your hands and that's a sticky bud that's going to pick up everything that's on your fingers and knowing that it's been up someone's nose, would you want to take that home and smoke it? <laughs> and then they're like, ooh, ooh, ooh yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so don't do it. Don't yeah. do it. But you can take the jar and like, you know, I'll, I'll hold it for you and you'll get that aroma because it is so pungent. Like it's going to hit you. Right. You know, but leaving work, always smelling like weed was always an interesting thing, especially taking public transit back in the day. I would say back in the day, nowadays, no one would probably even blink an eye. No. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was definitely something. Oh, I'll never forget this one time when I was in grad school at Berkeley and I went and picked up some cannabis at Patients Care Collective down on Telegraph uh, in between classes. And then I had to go to this small public science or political science seminar. And it was in this like small room. There were only like five of us. I was the only person from social welfare. And I had my backpack with me and I brought it into the room. I put it under the table and we're all sitting there. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, it totally smells like weed in this room right now. Like it was so pungent that it was emanating out of my backpack. And I just spent that whole hour, like nervously looking around being like, they're going to know it's me. They're going to know it's me. And I mean, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I wasn't consuming during class. I was a legitimate patient. I had gone to a regulated dispensary, but there's still this kind of leftover feeling of days of prohibition where it's like, they're going to find out I'm going to get in trouble. They're going to think less of me. And, you know, the reality is it takes a while for that to wear off. You know, I don't stick a towel under the door anymore, but I definitely am more like still very aware. Of course, I live in Mendocino, so everybody here smells like weed. So it's not a thing. <laughs> but when right. I travel, especially if I'm going to a prohibition state, then I get very nervous. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm a white woman. So like, I really don't have as much right to be nervous as other people do. But I still feel it. You know, I still feel that leftover from prohibition for sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, from prohibition, it's like my husband is always asking me, he's like, why do you smoke the joint to the very end, Sarah? You know, there's more where that came from. I'm like, I grew up in an era of prohibition. <laughs> okay, so I've got a story for that too. So it must have been like 2003 or something. And there was a Students for Sensible Drug Policy event in Anaheim. And it was probably 2002 because I was very new to the California market. And I'm sitting in this hotel room and all these people are smoking weed and they're rolling joints and everything. And of course, there's like shake all over the place because, you know, they're rolling a joint. Some of it's fallen out. I'm walking around with a baggie and a credit card scraping all of the <laughs> shake into a bag. I'm like, how are you wasting this? It's really good weed. I And I just will never forget that. And then several years later, 
I was at the MAPS conference in Oakland and we're smoking a joint and I got halfway through it and I was like, oh, this doesn't taste very good. And I just threw it away. And then I was like, wow, okay, Amanda, like you've changed. You have changed <laughs> the girl that was scraping the, the dust off the table in the hotel room in Anaheim because you didn't want to waste any. Right. Well, but I mean, when 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 it used to be such a big deal to like an ordeal just to get it, it takes a while for that to to leave your system. It does. It absolutely does. I used to joke to people when they'd come in for the first time, they'd be like, wow, this was easy. This was great. I just picked this up. I'm like, yeah. I was like, and you don't have, you didn't have to wait for me. You didn't have to get me high and you didn't have to hear about my band. (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) Oh, my, my guy who I used to get weed from in uh, Chicago was at my wedding. Like oh, that's he, awesome. He's such a big part of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are those special relationships, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, well, when we're looking at the landscape, what are what are some of the things that you're excited about? What are the things that you're hoping to see? Well, you were talking before about kind of breaking through the cannabis bubble. Mm -hmm. And I feel that this is the next frontier. And, you know, when you look at like the patterns of adoption of anything, right, you have your early adopters who are kind of first to the game and they're super into it, you know, and then you've got the kind of the folks that lag behind, but are still pretty easy to turn on to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then you have kind of the late adopters and they're the biggest group. Right. So most people do not rush in early. Right. Most people wait until it kind of gets some traction and people start to feel comfortable with it and it starts to become more normalized before they jump on board. And I feel like with cannabis, we're now getting to the late adopters. We're moving past the canna curious and we're getting into what I call the canna oblivious. So people that really know nothing, that aren't even, it's not even necessarily on their radar. Like they may hear about it or read about it, especially if their state has an adult use market or is considering medical, and maybe they know someone who knows someone who uses it for something, but it really isn't on their radar at all. But maybe they're using opiates, or maybe they're using other pharmaceutical drugs that aren't serving them, or maybe they're using alcohol in a way that isn't serving them, but they haven't really put that connection together that, wow, cannabis is something that I could be using to reduce the harm and and increase the benefits in my life. And so my, I really am excited about using my role as a social worker, as somebody who's been in the industry for decades, but also has been a consumer for over half my life to reach those people, right? To find the people that are maybe even a little against it still and help them better understand what cannabis is for. And so I'm really looking forward to those late adopters starting to discover this because the early data on the reductions in alcohol use, on the reductions in opiate use is very, very promising. And I can only imagine that the opportunity to reach more people is going to only heighten that effect and reduce some of the very big public health harms that we're dealing with today. I sure hope so. I mean, we've seen a lot of that in California. And I think, you know, having people like you continuing the conversation about this getting us towards normalization is a huge help, especially with just all the work that you did with research and 
I mean, you're just you're just a very knowledgeable, friendly, approachable person that makes it easy to learn from, which is what it's all about. We we have to feel comfortable. There's I think some people have a lot of shame about not knowing and it's like, well, you, you don't know what you don't know. And like I always like to say, conversation is normalization. We're all at our own levels. We're walking chemistry experiments. You may not have the same experience with a product as your friend does. But talking about it is the beginning of the journey to figuring out if it will work for you at all. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to that point, when you were talking about bud tenders and kind of the education there, you know, it's not just about how to talk to the person that already knows everything about cannabis. Right. Um, You know, it's about arming them with the ability to talk to someone who's nervous about even using the language and then getting out there and educating potential consumers about what the language is. Because walking into a dispensary, And feeling like you are going to ask the wrong thing or do the wrong thing is still a huge barrier for people. Um, You know, I remember the early dispensaries, right, where you couldn't use your cell phone and there were like very strict rules about how you had to act. And in some of them, like you had to go to one window and show your rec and then you had to go to another window and then you had to sit in a room and then they would come get you and take you down this long hallway and you would go meet with a consultant. And, you know, it still felt very... Like you were kind of doing something wrong. Yeah. And so I think that there is still a little bit of that out there. And for newer consumers, they may feel like if I go to the dispensary and I ask the wrong thing, like, am I going to get in trouble? Um, And and is the bud tender going to laugh at me? Uh, Are they going to know that I'm completely naive? And like these things, these psychological things are barriers for people. So I think we need to educate the bud tenders on how to create a warm and inviting environment and not have it just be like, oh, everyone here loves weed and I love weed. So let's just talk about weed. And then we also need to approach the consumers and give them some very basic language on how to talk about cannabis. So when they do go in the dispensary, they feel comfortable. You know, my brother, who's a certified ganjier, and um, he lives in uh, San Rafael, he has a consulting firm and he will go online with you and go through the menu. So like you can, he'll zoom with you, go, you know, look at your dispensary menu. He'll explain what all the products are. He'll help you figure out what you're looking for so that when you do walk in the door, you have the language, right? And you are like, all right, I've already looked at this. You know, I know what I want. I know how to ask for what I want. And I think we need to do more of that. Um, I used to do a lot of education at Rossmore, which is an adult assisted living facility and community in Lafayette, California. And they have a medical cannabis club that has like hundreds of people in it. It's huge. It's huge. And so, you know, I've done, I did a Valentine's Day talk there a few years ago about cannabis and intimacy. I've talked about how to grow your own cannabis. And so I think in addition to expecting people to come to us in the dispensary world, we have to go out to them. We have to go to the places where the people are and give them this very easy and very approachable way to think about the plant. I agree. I agree. And when you're talking about Rossmore, it's it's interesting because, you know, for for years now, they've been like, oh, seniors, they're the fastest growing group of consumers. They're the newest group of consumers. And when I went to Rossmore, I was like, all right, guys, this is what they're saying about you. But you and I both know that if you didn't use it, you knew someone who did. You just grew up during the war on drugs. So you kept your business to yourself. And they were all like, yes. I'm like, and for those of you who don't know a lot about it, that's okay too. You've got all these wonderful people to talk to. And you've got, you know, people like me and you 
who are coming here to, you know, help navigate it as well. It's like, it's all about the fun. My first time going into a dispensary, I felt like I was doing something wrong and they were all lovely. It was like I was mentioning, it was that old vapor room. But I approached it like when you used to, have to go into the head shops and you couldn't talk about weed or they'd kick you out. Yeah. I was worried it was going to be It's a water pipe. It's not a bong. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some flavored tobacco at home. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that fear. And especially when that used to be coupled with potential arrest. I mean, yeah. it wasn't like you were just looked down upon, you know, you said the wrong thing to the wrong person in the wrong place. And it was actually risky. I mean, I got caught with weed at a public park in Wisconsin um, by a park ranger. I got charged with possession. Um, I got it pled down to disturbing the peace. Um, And so, you know, but it's like in that moment, you know, this was just at my own campsite, like rolling a joint at a campsite, like who thinks that that's inappropriate. But in that moment, it really could have caused a lot of harm to me. So like people carry that with them. They carry that inside of them. And so I think that's another thing that, especially when we're talking about older folks that we have to really be conscious of that, you know, these Gen Zs, (laughs) sounds so old, these Gen Z kids, you know, with their vape pens and their TikToks, (laughs) but, you know, they, they grew up in an era of at least medical. I mean, you know, if you live in, if you were born in California in, you know, the mid nineties or in the early two, I mean, kids born in, 2000 are, are old enough to smoke weed now in California. That so blows my mind. I, mean, I know. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> but, but, you know, they, they don't understand. They grew up with like your neighborhood dispensary. And so there definitely is a generational issue with who is being educated, who feels comfortable, who has really embraced this new legal world versus who is transitioning into it. And so we just have to be really mindful of that um, and understanding when we're providing education, when we're talking to different groups of people. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For people who want to uh, take a look at the reports for New Frontier, want to learn more about personal plants or just see what you're doing, how would they do that? Well, a new frontier is newfrontierdata.com and you can go there and you can download our analyst reports. Um, so, you know, we do, like I said, consumer reports, we do market reports. Um, so you can get all of that information on the website and then personal plants is just mypersonalplants.com. And I write a lot about conscious consumption. Um, I'm in the middle of doing a three-part series about teens and cannabis with an adolescent psychologist named Barry Lesson. So what to do if you find out your teen is using cannabis? How do you talk to your teen about cannabis? So again, you know, we're really trying to take that approach of education forward, um, destigmatizing cannabis and information for everyone. So whether you have been consuming for years or whether you've never consumed and are even thinking about it, we want this education to be approachable. So I always say, go to the site, take the articles, send them to your mom, send them to your kid. Like, you know, when I was young, like my mom would always cut out like Dear Abby and like send it to my grandma or my grandma would send it to my mom. Like, let's let's start that again. You know, like, let's really get the education information around and 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 talk about it and use it as a talking point. That's awesome. And everybody, I really encourage you to go to both sites and check it out. The reports are fascinating. There's a lot to get out of the articles. Amanda is a wealth of information. And if you like to nerd out like I do, it's just, it's a lot of fun too. (laughs) So check it out. Amanda, I am just so glad that we were able to get together and talk and I'm looking forward to our future conversations as well. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. This was such a wonderful conversation. I feel like we could go on and on and on for hours, um, but we'll just have to have a part two. We will. We will. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And everyone remember, Planted is twice a month. And if you like listening, please give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care.